want to ask you a question this morning. If you could choose to experience anything in your lifetime, what would it be? So think about the, the thing, the bucket list, the one thing that that's, that's what I would choose. That's where I would go. That's what I would see. That's what I ex- would experience. And, and it's, it's, the, it's the big moment that you would live your life for. Well, in 2018, BBC Travel presented a piece about a newly developed hiking trail through northeastern Egypt. And you can see a little bit of the end of that hiking trail up on the screen. It has been dubbed the world's best hike. And it is a 125-mile hike across the desert of southeastern Egypt. And so the people that begin the hike, they start in Nuibia on the Gulf of Aquaba, and they travel 125 miles through barren wilderness. There's no water. If you want to survive, you, uh, you hire a Bedouin uh, team to take their camels and to bring you and your, and your friends across that desert. And over a period of 12 days, you travel 125 miles until you get to the El Tur Mountains. And there is a peak at the end of that. The pinnacle of the journey is a 7,500-foot mountain peak overlooking a breathtakingly rugged and beautiful desert panorama. When the sun sets, the scene comes alive with blazing color. Although this hiking trail has only been around since 2016, it actually finds its roots in ancient history. There's actually a recorded, an ancient record of the first person who we ever know that summited this peak back in the year 1446 BC. It was an 80-year-old Bedouin shepherd who came to this very mountain that you see up on the screen here today. And And the circumstances were a little bit different. Typically in the desert, the skies are clear and blue and there's heat and and there's not a cloud to be seen. But on this day, there was thick clouds surrounding the mountains and there was thunder and there was was quaking of the earth. In fact, the, the Bedouins' fellow travelers were so terrified of what was happening that they were not even willing to travel with him up to this mountain. The scene was so ominous that none dared join him. And so that was the day that Moses first stepped into the presence of Yahweh in a way that he would later describe as face-to-face, as a man speaks with his friend. In Exodus 19, Moses went up Mount Sinai, this very mountain that is pictured here, to meet with Yahweh. The scene is described in chapter 19, thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. Several chapters later, the scene is further described. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount. Moses ended up going back a second time up into the mountain. And when he came down the second time, the people noticed that because he had been in the presence of God and that the glory of God was now radiating from his face and the people were so afraid of him 
that he had to put a veil over his face to keep them from being able to see just a reflection of that which he had seen up in the mountain, and that became his normal pattern. Every single one of us has thought about what event from the Bible, if I could get in a time machine and go back and see it, what event would I go back to see? And so we think of a lot of different things that happen in Scripture. We, we think of the crossing of the Red Sea, or we think of Samson and his great feats of strength, David and Goliath, or perhaps even Jesus walking on the water. But I would suggest this moment. This moment when Moses went up the mountain, when Moses beheld God's glory, this is the one. Why would I say that? There's so many interesting things. There's so many fascinating events. There's so many miraculous moments and acts of power that happen throughout Scripture. Why this moment? Well, to, to quote a, a common uh, quotation that's, that's been around for a while, I've heard it said that life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. That quote touches upon something of the human condition, how we're wired, how God has made us. In other words, the best moments in life are more than just nice. They're more than just beautiful. They're more than just memorable or even powerful. The best moments in life are transformational. They grip us. They move us. They change something in us and And I would suggest to you this morning that nothing, no experience compares to the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in fact, I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be in one particular verse, but I want to give some context. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul actually references this moment with Moses. God's glory was so transforming that it made Moses' face glow with glory. But Paul makes an argument that his new covenant ministry presents an even greater display of glory. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, just verses 7 and 8. Paul says, but if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious or more glorious? So this morning, if you could choose to experience one thing anything in your lifetime, what would it be? Well, we cannot travel back in time, unfortunately, to the moment when Moses beheld God's glory. And today, if you went on this hike that has been called the world's best hike, and if you traveled 125 miles, and you ended up at Mount Sinai, and you traveled to the top at sunset, you would behold the beauty of the desert... With your imagination, you could picture Moses there on that mountain, but you would not be transformed by that hike. So this morning, I'd like to commend to you a truly 
transformational journey. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And this is really where we're going to be focusing our attention this morning. Paul says these words. He says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The title of the message this morning, and really the thesis that I am going to try to encourage you with this morning is on the screen there we go is life's most glorious journey so every one of us is in life you're alive your heart is beating your mind is thinking you're you're living you're experiencing and you're not static none of us are a snapshot Every one of us are moving forward. Life is linear. We are on a journey. And so this morning, I'd like to give you three pieces of advice from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, to help your journey to be as beautiful and as glorious as it can possibly be. The first piece of advice is this. You are already on the journey. You're already on it. Like, oh, how do we start this? You're already on it. You're already on the journey. So perhaps you've heard of um, these YouTube celebrities, Rhett and Link. And so my apologetics class, we actually discuss these guys a little bit and their journey of faith. And so to just briefly catch you up on it, Rhett and Link, famous YouTube personalities, they grew up in an evangelical Christian community. They had a testimony of faith. They even served as missionaries for a while with Campus Crusade. But three years ago, both of these individuals walked away from the Lord and denounced him very publicly on their social media platforms. Rhett McLaughlin, uh, in just February 2020... Uh, he came out and he presented a, about a two-hour deconversion testimony. So that was three years ago. And apparently, every year, they give a little bit of an update. Well, a year ago, on the second anniversary, Rhett was very excited that he had purchased a study Bible. A, as he called it, a liberal study Bible. It was the... Uh, it was the Harper Collins Study Bible, and he described it as being this study Bible that actually doesn't take the Bible seriously. It just presents it as literature, and the historical facts may not all be correct, and there's disagreements within the Bible, and, and it presents it as human literature. He was very excited about that. Just recently, he got to the third anniversary, and he shared an update of his deconversion. This is what he said. He said, if you're hoping that this year is an update on all the insights I gathered from all the Bible I read, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I didn't get very far. I don't want to trash the Bible and say it's boring, but it's kind of boring, especially when you've read it, like you've spent a lot of time in your previous life reading it. The point I'm making, or rather that Paul is making, is that only believers can behold the glory of God. Notice verse 18. Paul says, but we all 
with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. So in the context of what Paul is doing, he's defending his apostleship, and he's been talking about his gospel ministry and the supremacy of his gospel ministry over the old covenant ministry even of Moses. But now in verse 18, he includes not only himself, but also the believers that were in Corinth, and by extension, believers today. He says, we all... And so that's those of us today, today that know the Lord. So here's the point. Every believer has already seen God's glory. Look with me a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. This is, a, this is the moment of conversion. And Paul says this. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, when you got saved, you didn't just get saved. Something remarkable happened. You saw something that you had never seen before, not with your physical eyes, but with your eyes of faith. You saw the holiness of God and recognized your own sinfulness. You saw the justice of God and understood your guilt before him. You saw the love and mercy of God in the finished work of Jesus and you knew hope. And you fell at his feet for forgiveness and in that moment you knew grace and joy and peace like you had never known before. You didn't just hear about Jesus. You experienced Jesus in that moment. It was a profound creation-level miracle. When you got saved, how much of God's power came to bear in your heart? Well, Paul describes it like creation. The God who shone out of the darkness and spoke creation into being, spoke into your hearts and brought life where before there was only death. But somebody who has never experienced this miracle is blind to God's glory in his, in his self-revelation. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, just a couple verses back, it describes the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But notice Paul says, he says, but we all with open face. That is the idea. When he says open face, I, I don't know about you. When I read that phrase, I think of a, an open face sandwich. Um, that's not what it's saying. Open face is the idea that instead of a veil over our face, the veil is removed. In other words, here's the glory of God, and here's me, and there's nothing between me and it. I can see him clearly. I can experience him clearly. And so we all with open face beholding the glory of the Lord. All right, I've used the word glory a number of times. But what exactly is the glory of God? I'm not sure any definition would really do it justice. But... I'm going to try, and this is lengthy, and so listen with your mind, but also listen with your imagination. The glory of God is the beautiful essence of God's perfections. It's who he truly is. 
the unapproachable brilliance of his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature, declared in all his works and manifest everywhere his omnipresent presence touches. Only hidden by the blindness of men's hearts and from full exposure by the wise and loving hand of God. For two things are true about God's glory. We were made for it, but we're not ready for it. Its fullness would destroy us, but someday it will remake us into the perfect creaturely image of our glorious creator. When scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God, what that means is that when we look at creation, there is something transcendent that speaks to us and it says God did that. That beautiful painting, the painter did that. The beautiful construction, the builder did that. There's something glorious when you see the works of God's hands, you know that they were the works of the hands of somebody who in the beauty of his creation is himself beautiful. To simplify, God's glory is the beautiful essence of God's perfections. It's, true, it's who he truly is. Verse 6 tells us in our salvation, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Moses requested to see God's glory? He said, please show me your glory. And God answers Moses by telling him that he cannot look on his full glory and live. But then God agrees to hide Moses in the rock and and show him his partial glory. But I want you to notice that when this happens... What God reveals is exactly the beautiful essence of his perfections. He reveals who he truly is. And I want to just read just a portion of that narrative to you. And I want you to consider what God is revealing. In Exodus 34, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed these words. Yahweh, Yahweh God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So when it comes to life's most glorious journey, I hope that you've seen that if you're a believer, you're already on that journey. The gospel and your conversion were the moment where you saw truth of who God is and what he has done And the gospel was beautiful to you, which is the only reason why anyone would receive it. To the world, it's foolishness. To those of faith, it's beautiful, because it reveals our beautiful God. And so you've seen the truth of who God really is, but the next piece of advice from our passage is, you've got to invest in the journey. Yes, you're already on it, You're already somewhere on the journey, but there must be an investment. Notice verse 18 continues. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. 
The phrase beholding in a glass is actually one Greek word. In this context, in the middle voice, it means to behold in a mirror. And, and I don't have time to fully argue this out, but this is the concept that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 as an analogy for the Word of God. James does the same thing by metaphor in James 1.23. If anyone be a hearer of the Word, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in a mirror. But I also want you to notice back in our passage in 2 Corinthians, the, the context of 2 Corinthians 3 demonstrates that he is talking about the mirror of God's word. In verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Paul is talking about his preaching and teaching ministry. And then he contrasts that with Moses and the veil over his face. And then notice in verse 14, he says, These Israelites were blinded, for until this day there remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, that's the reading of the Scripture, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So here's the point. If you want to behold the glory of God, you must look into the mirror of God's word. There is a source of his glory. Moses said, God, show me your glory. And the primary result of that was that God's presence was with him. And then God gave a description of himself, a verbal description of himself and his attributes and his character and his beauty to Moses. And Moses fell on his face and worshiped. I would actually suggest that if you say, Moses, what did you behold? Moses would say, primarily, it wasn't with my eyes physically, but it was with the eyes of faith that I beheld truth that transcended this world. I saw my God in his self-revelation. God has given us his word for us to know him. He has taken away the veil from our eyes in our salvation so that we can know him. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to make this knowledge personal for you and for me. Notice verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. This is the freedom to behold God's glory through his revelation. And so, every single one of us who know Christ as our Savior, we have been given full access to the glory of God revealed in the self-revelation of God in his word. And so we need to invest ourselves in this. How do we do that? Study your Bible. Don't just read God's word to get a blessing. Go to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Don't just try to get some more knowledge. Get to know your God. Don't just look for help, but rather look for his holiness. Don't just try to get wisdom, but seek the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't just read God's word to find peace, but to find the prince of peace. And in your quest, the Holy Spirit will transform you. 
He'll bless you, help you, grow you, grow your knowledge, make you wise, give you peace that passes understanding. I would actually suggest, a lot of people are like, well, I just read my Bible until I get a blessing, until I learn something. I would suggest this, open up your Bible and read it until you see his glory. Until he becomes beautiful to you. Ah, that's going to take a while. No, not really. Not if you're looking for it. Also, another way we can invest in this is by listening to preaching. You'll behold his glory. Oh, Dr. Brock, you don't understand. I'm a college student. I'm going from this thing to this thing to this thing. They're all good, but it just dominates my schedule. But God has given you Monday chapel, Tuesday chapel, Wednesday small group, dorm devotions, workshops, Bible classes, Wednesday night church, Sunday church. You have been given ample opportunities like, oh, I just can't spend time with God like I want. Take the opportunities you have. Invest yourself in them. Paul said in verse 12, we use great plainness of speech. And he wasn't talking about the fact that he was the most amazing preacher ever. But he was saying this, when the preaching and teaching of God's word happens, there is no reason in the world why you cannot behold his glory in that moment. If the word of God is being opened up, the speech is plain. Invest yourself Do you see him in preaching? Do you see his work and his character? Are you moved by the beauty of his perfections? But what if I find the Bible a little difficult, or dare I say, a little boring? That's our flesh. It wants to distract us. It wants to entertain us. It wants to get us so busy, and it wants us to, it wants us to think that, that my true rest is found in whatever activity that I think refreshes me. And it's a struggle at times. I'm going I'm to tell you a secret. Um, I, that's just, it's not much of a secret. I'm just going to tell you something that God has used in my life. There's a chapter of the Bible that I think if you read it, and you spend time there, and you meditate on it, will change your view of Scripture. The longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses, but it's awesome. It's all about the Bible. I believe it's written by David. Psalm 119. There are 22 sections of eight verses each, which means that you can come to one section and you can spend time there. You can, um, you can read it. You can pause. You can pray can reread it, you can journal, you can meditate on it. In 22 days, if you do that one section per day, it's going to give you a new perspective. Go ahead and take Psalm 119 if you're reading somewhere in the New Testament and just read a section per day. I've been doing this for a number of years, multiple times a year, and I have not gotten tired of it yet. There is truth and there is encouragement. I'm just going to share one thing with you. So here is the psalm writer, a writer of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a man of God, and he's writing Scripture, but he's also talking about his relationship with Scripture. And at least a half a dozen times, this man prays and asks God for help. 
in understanding and receiving his word. I'm going to give you two examples. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Verse 73, thy hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Well, Dr. Brock, you know the Bible well. Yeah, I've, I've read it many, most of my life, studied it. I love it. I pray these prayers regularly. Lord, open my eyes. You've made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn thy commandments. So when it comes to life's most glorious journey as a believer, you're already on the journey, but we also see that you need to invest yourself in the journey. And the last thing I want to point out, last piece of advice, simple. Enjoy the journey. Notice how verse 18 concludes. We all with open face or unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed. That word changed is the word that is used of Jesus in the Gospels on the Mount of Transfiguration, to be transformed. We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And so this has the idea that as we come to the word of God and we open it up, we behold the face of Christ. We behold the character of God. We behold the beauty of his attributes and perfections. And as we behold him, we are being transformed by the spirit of God from one degree of glory to the next When I read my Bible this morning, I did not become perfectly like Jesus Christ, but I became a little bit more like him. And tomorrow, a little bit more like him. And as we give attention to the word of God, we can become a little bit more like him. We behold his glory and we are transformed to reflect his glory little by little until that day when we are glorified and we see him face to face. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our innermost part. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. You could do a study through the individuals in scripture that beheld the glory of God. Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul. And in each of these individuals, you can see truths that they learned. And and I don't have time to to show all of that to you in Scripture, but I, I want to just commend a few points of what this transformation will look like. Beholding God's glory, we see from the example of Moses, will transform your worship. Moses beheld God's glory, and he bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. From Isaiah's example, we can see that beholding God's glory will transform you as a servant of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah preached a powerful, powerful sermon against his corrupt culture. Woe, 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 judgment be upon you. Six times. 
And then in chapter 6, he beheld the glory of Christ and he preached one more point to his sermon. He said, woe is me. So he saw truth and then the grace of God and immediately flowing after that, God asked the question, he said, who will go for me? And into that moment, Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. So beholding God's glory will transform you as a servant of Christ. From Ezekiel's example, we see that beholding God's glory will transform your view of loss within the will of God. There's not a single one of us who will live this life without a bitter disappointment, a heartbreaking loss, an opportunity that never was. Ezekiel saw the Lord's glory four times. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 43, chapter 44. And after seeing God's glory in the first couple occasions, a few years later, God had a task for him. He said, Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife from you. The delight of your eyes. And I don't want you to mourn because I've got a purpose to speak to Israel about my judgment. Beholding God's glory will transform your view of loss within the will of God. How could Ezekiel do that? How could he? Because he had seen God's glory. His entire perspective changed. And I can't actually explain it all to you. Because it's the work of God. And then from Paul's life, we see that beholding God's glory will transform you into making God look beautifully glorious in whatever you do. Paul saw Christ's glory. He later says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Spurgeon said this about John Bunyan. He said, John Bunyan is an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you'll see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture, and, and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. And so this is life's most glorious journey. As a believer, you're already on the journey. Today you must invest yourself in the journey, but I would say it should not be a chore. It should be a treasure of enjoyment. There is nothing in this world like being transformed more and more into the image of our beautiful Savior. If God offered me a glimpse today like Moses on this mountain, he said, I'm going I'm to be there. If you can get yourself here, I'm going to be there. There's nothing in this world that could stop me from being there. But I suggest to you this morning that he does offer us that opportunity every single day in our normal life. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, even by the Spirit of the Lord. Father, would you use your word this morning to transform how we think and how we operate and how we journey 
And may each day be a quest for your glory. And would you look beautiful in how you change us. And we commit it to you in Christ's precious name. Amen.